Let's now open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah for our communion sermon, the 50th chapter, verses 5 through 9, though we will begin reading at verse 1. This 8th century B.C. prophet who so clearly saw the Lord Jesus Christ that he is often called Isaiah the Evangelist because he saw the evangel, the gospel, the good news. Let's briefly pray together. Before reading your word, O Lord, and expounding this word, we ask for the Holy Spirit's work, the strange, mysterious, and powerful work of the Spirit of God. Make us as a church dangerous to the kingdom of Satan and bring forth within our hearts the fruit of repentance. Grant that we may see something of the the glory of the sufferings of the Lamb of God in this text, and that our lives and hearts may be transformed and changed by it. For those, Heavenly Father, in our midst that are lost and undone, we pray that they will this day, by the Spirit's enablement, see Jesus Christ who hung upon a cross as the only hope and refuge for them as sinners. And may we as believers in Christ continue to deepen our understanding of that truth and reality and live consistently with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 50, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame." He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Did you know that the Lord has often sent revival to his church during times of communion? In communion seasons, it's no surprise really when you think about it, the Lord sends revival often to his church in times when the church is most deeply humbled, 
when we are humiliated in the dust, when we recognize the depth of our sin and our need of grace most greatly, and surely at a communion time when we contemplate the death of our Savior and the wounds and the suffering and what he bore in order to save us, oh, what a marvelous thing it would be indeed if God sent an effusive, powerful working of the Holy Spirit in the midst of this congregation during this communion service. There is something deeply awry in a Christian's life when he cannot benefit from contemplating the death of Christ and his sufferings. Here is sacred ground, this 50th chapter of Isaiah. It is the third of the servant songs in Isaiah. He prophesies exile in the beginning, but God did not invite divorce with Israel. They will receive what they deserve in exile due to their own sin, he says in verse 1. And then the Lord reminds them that he lacks no power. He will redeem through the suffering servant of Jehovah. And immediate encouragement is found for you and me as sinners in this passage. God lacks no power to save. For he says to us in verse 2, Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? The Lord can redeem. The Lord is omnipotent, and he can save. And he promises in this passage to do so through his suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, who would come. I believe that Jesus can save sinners. Do you? I believe that God lacks no power to save. Do you? I believe that no matter how great our sin is, that God can save us from our sin. Do you believe that? I believe no matter how stubborn is our will, that God can sovereignly change our will and draw us to himself. Do you? I believe no matter how infinitely glorious is God's law and how absolutely crushing is its curse upon those who break it, that God can save and deliver sinners from the curse of the law. Do you believe that? I believe no matter how great is God's wrath, that he can pour out his own wrath upon his son, that our guilt might be removed and that wrath be taken away. Do you believe that? I believe that no matter how deep our enmity against God, that he can remove that enmity and transform the heart, that he can remove our stony hearts and give to us hearts of flesh. Do you believe that? So open your hearts to remember Christ's sufferings, that you may have a heart filled with gratitude and love and trust as we observe those sufferings in this 50th chapter of Isaiah. Christ's sufferings were, first of all, according to this passage, obedient sufferings. They were obedient sufferings. The figure describing obedience is in the first part of verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear. Now you will remember that back in Exodus, the 21st chapter, that we are told if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of a, or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When the Lord Jesus says to us, the Lord God has opened my ear, he is speaking, therefore, of his obedience to the Father, that his ear was bored that like that slave of old, he will be obedient to his God, that he desires to be obedient to his will. The Savior did not resist his calling or the burdens of his office. Answer this for me. Why would God the Son, equal with the Father, the same in substance, subordinate himself to the Father's commission? Why would he do that? 
He did it because he obeyed you and I had not he did in our place. He obeyed perfectly meeting the requirements of God's law for us and paid its full penalty. These words then, the Lord God opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. These words are the loving words of your Savior by prophecy. From all eternity, Christ entered into covenant engagements to redeem his own people. Yes, Father, I will obey your commission. Yes, Father, I will come into the world for those sinners. Yes, Father, I will give my life on a cross for them. I will keep the law that they broke. I will pay the penalty of that broken law. Yes, Father, I will sign that everlasting covenant of grace with the red ink of my own blood so that they may be redeemed and saved from their sins. Do you see, people of God, the obedient sufferings of Jesus were determined in eternity past. And in this passage, Jesus himself speaks these words to you. Do you see then that your Redeemer has always been consumed with passion for you? Always has he been consumed with passion for the glory of God. Always has he been consumed with passion to come and to redeem and save you. He had a passionate love for you from eternity past. And he has a passionate love for you still to this day. And he always will have an infinitely passionate love for you. He loves you still with this infinite holy passion. If you ask me what is infinite love, I cannot tell you. I cannot describe it. I cannot define it. But I can say this, look to the cross. And there on the cross you will see infinite love, infinite compassion. He loves you. God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His sufferings were obedient sufferings, but also his sufferings were voluntary sufferings. It was no begrudging obedience on the part of the Son of God when he came into this world to die for sinners. He obeyed the Father willingly, willingly submitted to the Father's will and also to the hostility of men around him. Have you ever thought of Jeremiah's complaint and compared the Lord Jesus' understanding of his call with Jeremiah's? Jeremiah says in chapter 19, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. Lord, is this what you've called me to? Everyone is laughing at me. They're mocking me. I thought you called me to be a great prophet, Lord. He did not understand his calling. But Jesus had no such misunderstanding of his calling. He came into this world willingly, he obeyed willingly, and he knew that he came to suffer and bleed and die on a cross. Look at his willingness in verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. Look at his willingness in verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Look at his obedience in verse 7. I have set my face like a flint. You see his holy, determined, almighty patience. Come what may, he set his face like a flint. Whatever we had done, he set his face like a flint. Whatever we would do to him, he set his face like a flint. 
Whatever sin we would commit thereafter, he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem that he might go and suffer and bleed on the cross. And even through the gloom of Gethsemane, when Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death, death on a cross did not deter him. As a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He did not retaliate. The taunting did not deter him. When the thief on the cross said to him, If thou be the Christ, save thyself, he set his face like a flint. No, even from eternity, the Son gave himself up for us. The sufferings of the Son of God were voluntary sufferings. The New Testament makes this plain. In Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, referencing this text in Isaiah 50. In Luke 12.50, we read, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. In John 10, the Lord Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And in John 18, 11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? His sufferings were voluntary sufferings. How unlike you and me. Many a man has resolved to do good and turn back because of the cost. If I do this thing, then it will cost me my reputation. People will think of me as a Christian after all. If I do this thing, it will cost the esteem of the community who no longer really esteem Christians. If I do this thing, then maybe it will cost my substance because people will not buy my goods, my wares. If I do this thing, it may cost me my life, for he who follows the Son of God must give his life for him. Jesus could have come down from the cross, could he not? He could have swept through his captors in judgment, could he not? He could have called 10,000 angels, could he not? But outward without willing obedience would not suffice. And this is us too often, outward without willing obedience, but not our Lord. Now why is this important? Why is it important to know that his sufferings were obedient sufferings and that those obedient sufferings were sufferings that were voluntary and willing? Why is this important? It is important for this reason. Because his real Willing, voluntary obedience constitutes my righteousness and acceptance in God's court of law. Because his obedience rendered to the law and the penalty paid on the cross for my sin constitutes my acceptance with God. It is because of what he did that I am accepted and justified in God's court of law. This is what Paul the Apostle means when in the book of Romans, in the fifth chapter, he dwells upon the first and the last Adam, and he speaks of them in this way. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." We are constituted righteous. We are declared righteous in God's court of law because of his obedience to the law that you and I broke and because he paid the penalty for our sins. Do you pay attention to the words that we sing? The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. 
My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. My transgressions are hidden from view because of his willing, voluntary obedience to God the Father to come and obey the law and suffer and bleed and pay the penalty on the cross. This is your only righteousness. You have no other through which to be accepted by God. But not only were his sufferings obedient sufferings, not only were they voluntary sufferings, but according to this text in Isaiah 50, his sufferings also were shameful sufferings. Do you see here in verse 6, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, from shame and spitting. In Luke chapter 18, the Lord Jesus Christ focuses actually upon this passage when he says in verses 31 and 32, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day... He will rise. Jesus had this passage in mind as he neared the cross of Calvary. His suffering was the suffering of a criminal's death. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Have you ever stopped to think of his shameful sufferings that Jesus Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king suffered in all of his offices? that he suffered as prophet, blindfolded, prophesy, who is this that smote you, said the soldiers. He suffered in all that he did as our priest. And in Luke twenty three eleven, it seems that the, the garments that were put upon the Lord Jesus were intended to imitate priestly garments. He suffered as our king. A reed scepter was placed within his hands. A crown of thorns was pressed down into his brow. Hail, King of the Jews! What shameful mocking and suffering in our place. Look at his condescension. In verse 3, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. This is God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. Did you see the clouds this morning? Did you see how the skies were darkened? Did you feel the wind as it blew? I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. This is our great and magnificent God. This is who he is. And yet this same one says in verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And that joy was God's glory and your salvation. The God who who controls the weather, the God who created the universe, is the one who became incarnate and gave his back to the scourgers and his beard to those who plucked out the hair. What a sinful race we are. What hell-deserving people we are. As one of the old preachers once put it, the case for the total depravity of man is Jesus Christ hanging on a cross and all men not loving him. Isn't that true? And so I ask you, someone here lost and undone, 
This is the only Savior of sinners. It is only through His obedience, His shed blood, that you can be accepted by God. This is the friend of sinners. And I ask you, will you spit in the face of the friend of sinners? Will you mock the only one who can save you from your sin? Will you join the mockers at the foot of the cross? Is there someone here who yet refuses the gospel offer and invitation and command to believe and repent and trust in Christ? Do you spit and do you mock still? Do you join with the mockers? Shameful, shameful sufferings. He bore our shame that we might walk in his perfect record, his righteousness. But also the text tells us, fourthly, that his sufferings were tormenting sufferings, and we should never forget it. Look at verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting which is a summary, a brief but real summary of the Roman scourging, considered a pain worse than death. And had we time to read Isaiah 53, had we time to read Psalm 22, had we time to turn to the Gospels and remember his awful torments and pains, we would understand his sufferings were tormenting sufferings. That he bore our torments for greater than Rome's torments were poured out upon the Son of God. Greater than Roman affliction and Roman whips and scourging were poured out upon the Son of God. For the greatest thing that happened upon a cross is that which cannot be seen by our eye as he is engulfed in darkness on that tree. And God the Father pours out His awful, infinite wrath upon the Son of God in the place of sinners. And He is tormented there on that tree. As His holy soul and body becomes sin in the sight of God because the sin of His people were imputed to Him in our place. His torments, oh, His torments... From men were great, but his torments from God's wrath, who can calculate? He drank God's wrath. He drank the cup of your wrath and mine that I deserve to drink. He drank the cup of wrath down to the full, down to the bitter dregs. And as Brooks the Puritan says, that Christ in the night suffered so many such hideous things that the whole knowledge of them is reserved only for the last day of judgment. We will not know even then, I think. We are not capable of knowing. We are not capable as finite and sinful fallen creatures yet redeemed. We will never be capable of understanding what Jesus the Son of God endured in our place when He died upon the tree, what torments came upon Him. The soul of his sufferings were the sufferings of his soul, as the old preachers used to say. And he allows, imagine it, he allows the creatures that he himself created to flail his back, to nail him to a tree, 
to thrust a spear in his side, he allows his own creatures to treat him so. Why? 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 And the answer to the question is that his sufferings, fifthly, were substitutionary sufferings. We've assumed this all along, but we need to stress it. For you see, Isaiah chapter 53 interprets Isaiah chapter 50. He did not die on his account. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that has brought us peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What? A Savior. Sin deserved eternal scourging. And this He took. Yes, I say it. The Bible says it. In our place condemned He stood. This I deserved. God's infinite wrath and justice and judgment. This I deserved. This I deserved. This you deserved. Someone says, no, I did not. Yes, you did. No, I did not. Yes, you did. At the hands of justice, you and I deserved it. No, you say, yes, listen. If you do not see this, you do not see Jesus. If you do not see that you deserved this, then you do not understand Christianity. If you do not grasp this, then you do not grasp the gospel. If you do not understand this, then you are relying upon a false hope. If you do not see this, then you are lost and you are still in your sins and your guilt is heaped upon you. He bore the infinite punishment of hell. He paid the infinite penalty that we deserve to pay. As one of the Puritans put it, infinite satisfaction in a finite time. Now tell me, is this not love? Tell me, is this not grace? 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 Is this not grace? Is this not God's favor to the ill-deserving? Is this not sovereign, free grace, that He would come for the race of fallen humanity in Adam. That a Peter who denied Him, for Him He died. That many in the crowd who cried, crucify Him, crucify Him, came to know Him on the day of Pentecost, for them He died. And oh, you are standing on holy ground as you turn to this 50th chapter of Isaiah. For by nature, you are taught to think, do and live, do and live, do and live. But oh, what could we do to atone for sin? What could we do to remove our guilt? What could we do to bring pardon? We were 
helpless. We were hopeless. We were without God in the world. Why did he do this? Oh, every Christian heart now is saying he did it for me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. And that is true, my friend. That is true, my Christian friend. It is right that you say, He bore my hell for me. He drank the cup down for me. He entered into these obedient, voluntary sufferings, shameful, tormenting sufferings for me. This is true. But let me tell you, there is something that defines even that. There is something that is greater even than that. There is something more magnificent than that. He did this to magnify the grace of God in the sinner's life. He did this. He went to the cross in order that he might magnify the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. So that we turn to the book of Ephesians and there we have that constant refrain to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why he did this. That's why he hung there. But I need to tell you something else. One other thing about these sufferings, because sixthly, the sufferings of Jesus were victorious sufferings. They actually achieved his purpose, accomplished redemption. So look at verses 8 and 9 and see Jesus speaking here by the prophet saying, He who vindicates me is near Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So that our Savior, as he went to the cross, bearing our shame and our guilt, was himself guiltless and rose from the dead and declares our justification. He did not turn aside because he was conscious of God's help, because he was aware of his own guiltlessness. And because the guiltless one bore our guilt, then you and I, believers, can take upon our lips the words of this passage, and you and I now can say, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Because Jesus said that. Because Jesus bore your guilt. You now can say, who will declare me guilty? Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is Christ who died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Oh... The gospel is good news. It is good news for sinners. Do you hear it? Lost person here today, hear good news from heaven. In your guilt, Christ, 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 Christ is the redeemer of guilty sinners. So let's bring this, let's bring this to conclusion. Believer in the Lord Jesus. In view of the cross, we sometimes sing... Here, Lord, I give myself away. It is all that I can do. Well, are you? 
giving yourself away to him, tis all that you can do because of what he did for you. My sin was the scourge upon his back. My sin was the crown upon his brow. My sin drove the nails into his hands. My sin thrust the spear into his side. My sin caused the wrath to come and to fall upon him. He did this for me. He did this for you. If he did this for me, then I want to be his. I want to be his servant. I want him as my Lord. I want him as my master. I want him to define my life. I want him to tell me where to go and what to do and how to think and how to act. From what to abstain to what to, what to, to enjoy. I want him in all of life to be the determiner of my walk. Do you? Do you want that? Do you want that? Have you not wanted that? Well, repent, believer. Believe and repent. Obedience stems from a principle of love. When we understand the love of Christ for us, obedience stems from understanding His love. So that Charles Spurgeon was right when he said, I never feel so ardent for his cause as when I have been baptized afresh into his agonies. Allow this text now to baptize you afresh into his agonies. So that seeing what Christ has done for you, you will be ardent for his cause and ardent for his service. I will tell you something from a pastor's heart, and I can't define it. I believe that God is doing a remarkable work here in many a life. I know it. I see it. I've seen the transformations. I see some of what God is doing, though certainly I cannot see all because it's a secret work. But I will tell you something that I have thought for a long, long time. This church is not all that God wants us to be. Somehow, some way, we are still holding back. I can't define it. I'm not ashamed to tell you it's a feeling as I go to God in prayer. But I think it stems from this. Do we know how loved we are? Do we really understand the power of the cross in our lives? Do we begin to understand what it means that Christ removed the penalty of our sins? Then how can we be lethargic in His service? Why is this church not taking the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit to men and women and children throughout our community, more so than we are. What holds, you can only ask this question of yourself, what holds me back? What is the idol that I need to lay at the feet of this loving Savior? Are you drawn to these truths? Do you linger on these truths? Do you delight in these truths? These are the truths that transform hearts. These are the truths that transform marriages. These are the truths that transform relationships and churches and sinners. And our hope is nowhere else. And you need nothing else than this gospel. 
People learn to meditate here, learn to think upon these things, learn to delight in God and to delight in Christ and to delight in the Holy Spirit, to delight in what Jesus did for you. Let me ask some of you, have you spent one half hour with God alone in communion this week? Are you drawn to Him? Are you drawn to these things? Do you delight in Him? And sometimes when you see the mess in your lives, this is the source. I don't delight in Him. I don't commune with Him. And of course, the result is going to be messed up living. What are you saved from, my friend? What has God saved you from? What has He saved you to? Now, my unbelieving friend here this morning with us, let me say this to you. You have no sense of the enormity. Hear the word. You have no sense of the enormity of your sin. No sense of the enormity of your sin. Your mind is not here. Your heart is not here. You feel full and rich with what the world has to offer. Old Baptist minister R.G. Lee, I heard him tell a story once. When he pastored in New Orleans, there was a gentleman who would write him off-color notes and letters and deride him and, 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 and trounce his ministry. One day, Dr. Lee gets a phone call to come to the hospital. There's a young man dying. He goes there. There's this young man. This is the young man who wrote the letters. He's hard-hearted. He wants nothing of Christ, but he does say this to Dr. Lee. Dr. Lee, you go up and down the country preaching, don't you? Yes, I do, young man. I want you to go to other young people, and I want you to tell them this. Tell them for me, the devil only pays in counterfeit money. You delight in the world? Counterfeit money. So let me be earnest for your soul. Are you ready to die and face the holy God with where your heart is fixed right now? May God come down in sovereign grace and show you your hell-deservedness. May He show you your need of a crucified Savior. Do not turn a hard heart, a deaf ear to these words. Because the call is to immediate conversion. Come to Christ. Come to Him now because it is urgent. Come to Christ. Come to Him now because He is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Come to Him because He is worthy. My lost friend. And so as we come to this table, is not Christ dear to us, people of God? Is not Christ dear to us when we view His sufferings for us? Oh, crown him with your life. Crown him, the lamb upon his throne. Crown him, Lord of all. And God's people said...